but I would say the magnitude of the advantages of utilizing those programs uh, versus not utilizing them back in Brazil is, is definitely greater. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, I am so excited to welcome Dr. Pedro Fontes, Assistant Professor of Animal and Dairy Science at the University of Georgia. He earned his DVM from Sao Paulo State University, his Master's of Science from the University of Florida, and his PhD from Texas A&M University before landing in Georgia. His work focuses on educating producers on the benefits of reproductive technologies, and he also conducts applied research on optimizing sync programs and other reproductive technologies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Fontes. Well, thanks for having me, Brandy. Um, I'm, I'm happy to, to participate in the podcast. Well, we are really excited to, to have you here and to talk about all things reprodu reproductive technology. So just to get started, could you tell us about how you got involved in the beef industry and your career path so far and, know, and what you're doing these days? I know we talked about it a little bit just in your bio, but is there anything that you want to expound upon? And, and you can just dig down into the details if you'd like. Sure, sure. Uh, so I'm originally from Brazil, right? You probably noticed I speak a little bit funny and, and based on my name. Uh, so I was born and raised and in, in backgrounded in Brazil. Um, so my family, we're from southeast, from the southeast region of Brazil uh, in the state of Sao Paulo. And we run a, uh, for Brazilian standards, a small cow-calf operation in the countryside of the state. So that's how I, you know, uh, got involved with it, uh, based on, on the fact that my family runs some, some commercial cows, uh, we still do it. Um, you know, my dad is still, um, uh, the herd's still there. Yeah. It's up and going. Um, and yeah, that's how I got involved. So from there, you know, when I graduated, uh, from high school, I started, you know, looking into what I wanted to do. And because I was pretty heavily involved with the farm, um, I decided to, uh, give it a try and, and, and go the vet school career path. And I did that. Um, so I went to, like you said, Sao Paulo State University, had a great experience. It's a um, absolutely great university there uh, in the countryside of the state of Sao Paulo. And, you know, I had a, um, a mentor there that kind of exposed me to the research side of things. Uh, you know, my dream growing up is to be a field veterinarian, be out there, you know, doing C-sections, transfer embryos and, and doing all that. But, you know, I, I did a lot of that during my vet school program, uh, you know, working with some field veterinarians uh, it, at any chance I could. Uh, but then when I got exposed to the research side of things, I got really passionate about it 
pretty quick. So I, uh, I had the opportunity to work with some applied research in Brazil. Um, um, and, you know, that, that was eye-opening. Um, I was part of a, a student group. We call it a junior company there. It's called Conapec. And, you know, back in Brazil, we organized um, a conference. They still do organize that same conference. Um, it usually has between 1,500 and, and 2,000 people that come to that conference. And we often, um, pretty much every year, we will bring speakers from the United States. And, and that's how I built the connection with the U.S. Uh, I met Dr. Cliff Lamb, that was actually in this podcast a few uh, uh, episodes ago. Um, I encourage you guys that are listening to go there and, and listen to Dr. Lamb. So I got to work with him. Uh, he, I met him there at that conference, and he recruited me to uh, um, help him at uh, the North Florida Research and Educational Center, uh, Center for the University of Florida. So that's in the panhandle of Florida. So I lived there for about three years um, after I graduated from vet school. And then from there, uh, Dr. Lamb was recruited by Texas A&M to be the department head. So that's how I transitioned from Florida to Texas A&M. I actually started my PhD in Florida, but then um, uh, I went to Texas A&M uh, to finish it up. Actually, most of my PhD was there at Texas A&M. I only did one semester in Florida. But yeah, always with a focus on, 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 on reproductive biology as well as applied reproductive management. Um, I had to laugh a little bit to myself. You were saying that I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they wanted to do C-sections, that that was something that was a career goal for them. So. Yeah, probably just when I was a kid and I was just, you know, watching the veterinarians do it and I thought it was awesome. But then you go there and you, you know, you do a couple of them and then you're, you're pretty much done with it. Yeah. <laughs> you lose that excitement. Yeah, that's definitely something I hadn't heard before, but we need people who are excited about veterinary medicine and we need them everywhere. So you mentioned, obviously, you grew up in Brazil and you said um, that you grew up on a small cow-calf operation, small by their standards. What does, is it okay to ask you what does small mean in Brazil? Because in the United States, our average herd size is somewhere between like 40 and 50. Is it is it similar in Brazil or how, do, how is that different? No, no, actually in Brazil... Um Operations tend to be a little bit more extensive, um, but not only that, um, they, they tend to be larger too. Uh, the average cow-calf herd, I don't know by the top of my head, but it's larger than what we would see here in the U.S. So we, uh, back at our place, we will run around 350 mama cows. Mm -hmm. And these are all commercial, um, for the most part, the lower cows. Um, so that's a, a Bosinicus breed, similar to Brahmin. And yeah, it's funny because we synchronize them and we time breed to um, Angus sires. So uh, we do some crossbreeding because of the, the, the developments of synchronization programs and AI. So that's how I got kind of uh, uh, involved in it, you know, getting some exposure to that back home got me excited about it. And, and yeah. So other than the size um, between, you know, what what's small scale and large scale between the countries, I'm sure there has to be several more differences between the two countries and their beef production. I mean, is there anything that, I mean, that you want to share with us about maybe what are like the, the three biggest differences? Yeah. Like, you know, Brazil is very similar to the U S with, you know, when you think about the size of the country, right? Brazil is a, a huge country. So, you know, when we talk about Brazilian beef production, we can, it's very hard to generalize how it looks like. Because it's very similar to the U.S., right? If you're running cows in Montana, 
and you know you're running cows in in Okeechobee, Florida. These are two completely different countries, <laughs> right? So in Brazil, yes. it's no different. Um, but generally, you know, predominantly Brazil's, you know, if you think about the cow calf herd composition in Brazil, we're talking about you know the vast majority of those cows, you know, being the lower cows wide hide cows. Uh, the operations, like I said, they tend to be a little bit larger in size. Um, we have a lot of uh, environmental challenges. So the humidity and the, uh, the heat and humidity are really uh, rough. Um, and the cow herd, so you need some really tough cows uh, that can put up with that uh, climate. And, you know, there's some differences in infrastructure that I think uh, are still dragging Brazilian, Brazil's beef industry behind. But it's amazing how progressive beef producers are in Brazil. Uh, and one of the things that I try always, so I teach the beef production class here at UGA, and I always try to contrast, you know, different production systems across the world. And one of the things that amazes me the most about Brazil is the rate of adoption of reproductive technologies. Uh, it's amazing. Um, the uptake of artificial insemination, embryo transfers, and in vitro embryo production in Brazil, and how that has changed the, 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 the efficiency of the industry in general. So Brazil is a quite interesting uh, phenomenon from, from a beef production standpoint. Um, it has a lot of potential. It has, you know, in, has been increasing its production, but it's, it's, there's a lot of potential for the country to continue to increase uh, production of beef in general so yeah very nice uh, beef production system um, with with all those environmental challenges different type of operations different type of labor availability i mean it's a it's a completely different industry you, you keep i'm again i'm laughing to myself the audience can't see me but you were talking about how it takes us a, a tough a very tough cow to be in that hot humid environment and i um I am kind of like a Hereford that was raised in Canada. I always joke with people that I do not have any Boss Indicus influence because I am not good with the heat humidity. I would not be a good Brazilian beef producer. I would not be a good Florida or Georgia or uh, <laughs> College Station beef producer. So it's definitely, you know, it's, it's important to keep those differences in mind when you're, you know, developing beef production systems. You were mentioning that um, Brazil has a really good uptake of reproductive technology systems and, and uh, processes. Was that, was it that way when you were growing up or is that more of like a recent development? I would say it's probably in the last um, 15 to 20 years. Okay. So a big, a big game changer for Brazil was the establishment of astro-synchronization programs, right? Because of the extensive nature of the operations, we were basically not able to, you know, detect cows in estrus and utilize AI, right? So um, once those synchronization programs were established, um, it allowed us to, you know, time breed everybody, right? And, you know, just as sort of a comparison, right? So if you think about the average, you know, the average cow herd in the United States, that's going to vary quite a bit. But when you look at studies looking at percentage of cow cycling, in the beginning of the breeding season. In the U.S., usually those studies show about 50%. It can range all the way to 80% of the cow cycling, depending on the operation, all the way to 25% of those cow cycling. In Brazil, the bulk of the operations will have only about 30% or less of those cow cycling because of their, their, their genetic composition, right? Their, their boss syndicate's influence. So the synchronization programs are 
as a technological package, right? Because it allows us to get those cows to start cycling, you know, get them out of that postpartum anestrus. That's a real game changer, right? The return of investment for Brazil producers of synchronizing cows is huge. Um, so that's one of the reasons that, you know, the uptake was really clear because, you know, once folks start to utilize, they realize, okay, now I can really, uh, keep those cows, you know, calving once every 365 days. Um, so that was, that's one of the many reasons why it's a big game changer. It just seems like it, the way you're describing it, it seems like there was just a big jump that was noticed immediately for people. So, well, that's great when there's something that's so successful that people just jump right on board, right away. I'm sure you wish that all of the the wisdom and, and the data that you share with people was accepted that quickly. Yeah, you know, it, it, in the U.S. is a little bit more challenging, uh, uh, but that's for a good reason, right? Uh, I feel like cows here, they, they have been through selection pressure for a longer period of time. So if you think about our, you know, our main boss tires breeds here, we we do have a problem with postpartum anestros, but the magnitude of that problem is way less when you compare it to those Brahman influence animals. So, so if you think about synchronization programs and timed AI as a technological package, there's a lot of advantages uh, here as well. But I would say the magnitude of the advantages of utilizing those programs uh, versus not utilizing them back in Brazil is is definitely greater. Right. Right. Well, that makes sense. Um, so just staying on this topic of reproductive te technologies, like part of your work at Georgia is to develop strategies to maximize, fer uh, maximize fertility. And you're trying to, you know, find ways for producers to do that. Um, can you share any new updates in that area? Is there any research that you're focusing on right now that maybe you have a new protocol or something coming like can you share you have any for research that is not proprietary basically is what i'm asking <laughs> no, I, I, I pretty much everything that we do is you know uh we do it to make it available for the industry right so uh we have been working in in several different fronts uh i guess you try to improve fertility um and adoption of those reproductive technologies and a lot of the work that we do is not necessarily um because the nature of reproduction work, right? We rely a lot on collaboration, right? So we work with several other universities at the same time. But, you know, if you think about ourselves as an industry, some of the things that we're seeing is like some small changes in synchronization programs. I think Dr. Lamb kind of touched on it on his, uh, on his uh, podcast episode. You know, sometimes you're always uh, waiting for that magic protocol, uh, that it's going to come in and it's getting 100% of the cows pregnant or 80% of the cows pregnant. Uh, that's, you know, it's very unlikely that that's ever going to happen, right? There's only... Uh, oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert, yes. <laughs> we might, you know, we can increase trips to the shoot and have the best synchrony in the world. Uh, and we might uptake maybe 5 to 10% uh, in pregnancy rates compared to what we have right now. So right now we have some pretty well-established synchronization programs that work pretty well, but there are, you know, we play around with them. Uh, now we're, we've probably been hearing a lot about pre-synchronization programs. Uh, you know, the beef reproduction task force just um, uh, started endorsing one of the pre-synchronization programs that are out there, which is you probably heard about it as seven and seven sync. So we did some work I with that. Heard of that. Uh, I have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically, 
you know, uh, on the beef side, we're always lagging behind on the dairy industry, right? So uh, folks in the dairy world, uh, they've been pre-synchronizing cows for a long time. And, you know, by pre-synchronization, basically we mean uh, exposing those cows to a hormonal treatment before we start a conventional synchronization program, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, and that's pretty much what the seven and seven is. Um, it's basically you add one step to a common seven days program of synchronization. And we tend to see a little bit better response to the protocol. You know, we did a lot of work with heifers, characterizing the ovarian response of those heifers. You know, that work was led by Vitor in, in Virginia and, and Dr. Lamb as well at Texas A&M. So back when I was in grad school is when we did most of that work. Uh, but basically, you know, what that shown that has shown is that, you know, when you pre-synchronize those heifers, they tend to respond a little bit better uh, from a fertility standpoint. And and this has been then replicated in cows. The data in cows is, uh, depending on the study that you look at, uh, it shows a difference. Depending on the study that you look at, it doesn't. And it goes back to that idea of those synchronization programs, right? So there's a lot of interactions between those programs and depending on the operation we're working with. So some studies we see an advantage of those pre-synchronization programs. Some studies we don't in cows. Um, but yeah, uh, we also been working uh, with Doppler, doing quite a work, quite a lot of work with Doppler ultrasound. Um, so if you're not familiar with Doppler ultrasound, basically this is a ultrasound technology that allows us to actually measure blood perfusion. Um, and what we've been doing is measuring blood perfusion to the CL, so which is an ovarian structure, right, that produces progesterone. And we've been trying to use that in two different ways. Um, we have a large trial right now with Ember recipients, uh, seeing if we can better select recipients or better identify recipients that are more likely to keep, uh, to maintain a pregnancy after we transfer embryos. So if you're in a scenario, you know, every time you're transferring embryos, there's always a couple of matings that we really want to calf out of, right? So right, if yeah. we can go there and, and, and identify... yeah, <laughs> I want all of them to take. Yeah, if you can identify some of the recipients, they're more likely to, to um, you know, successfully become pregnant. There's a lot of value to that. So we're trying to do some work on that with one of my graduate students, Lucas. And then I got another graduate student, uh, um, Samir, yeah, which is actually from Brazil as well, and he is working on a resynchronization program with the Doppler. So one of my, uh, no, actually my first uh, graduate student, um, Matt, Matt Houghton, he, what he did for his master's was characterize whether we can utilize color Doppler to diagnose pregnancy earlier, right? So usually when we preg check cows with an ultrasound, we will, you know, we're limited to about day 28 of gestation when we can actually visualize that embryo uh, developing in the uterus. So the idea of the Doppler is that, you know, cows go back and start cycling usually, you know, about 21 days after we time breed them, right? So the idea of the Doppler is that we can visualize that based on the lack of blood perfusion in the CL. So uh, what Matt was able to show is that whenever we scan cows on day 20, if we switch the Doppler feature of the ultrasound, we can, you know, recognize about 90, we can accurately diagnose pregnancy uh, in around 90% of the animals. 
So what Samir is working on right now is actually resynchronizing those cows. So can we resynchronize cows to time breed them in an interval of about 21, 22 days? So trying to decrease the interval between two services that we would do by AI. So we were able to characterize the new technology. It works. We detect most of the non-pregnant cows. Uh, we're now trying to understand if we, you know, would cause some embryonic mortality when we do those resynchronization programs and fine tune those resynchronization programs so that, you know, producers can have good fertility whenever they're resynchronizing cows. So that's one of the, some of the projects that we're working on. We're doing some sire fertility work, looking at the effect of, uh, you know, excessive body weight gain in young sires on sperm quality. Uh, so uh -huh. we got quite a lot of work on that right now uh, happening. Um, That's an important point. You know, as we, you see bulls, people want growth and you see as bulls get bigger and people really push those yearling weights and such. There's, it's definitely interesting to see if there's any effect, effects on that of their fertility and their ability to perform. So that's it's very interesting to hear that you're doing research on that. Yeah, it's cool because uh, we always get good feedback from producers when you say that we're doing this because, you know, we, we, we need to really, we need to identify those animals that perform well, right? Uh, so um, there's a lot of concern with regards to how they do with regards to fertility uh, when we push them a little bit harder. So we're trying to understand that, you know, to what extent are we actually hurting uh, fertility of those bulls. Uh, so we do a series of in-depth sperm analysis. We actually uh, generate embryos um, out of fat versus leaner sires, and, and we compare the development of those embryos. We actually transfer those embryos and, and look how they develop or generate those pregnancies and look at how they develop in the uterus. So we're doing a, a, a series of work. We have probably five years of work funded ahead of us trying to characterize that so we can, you know, uh, provide that feedback for producers so they can better understand to what extent that might or potentially might not um, hurt fertility. Yeah, that's very, I mean, all the research you mentioned sounds very valuable. Uh, but I, I think that is really intriguing because that's something that I, I personally don't know how much research has been done on that. But I know that as a producer, when I buy a bull, I really want him to go to work and do his job. And so fertility is, is crucial. Um, I want to back up a little bit. You were talking about the some of the reproductive work with heifers and getting them and using those sync protocols like the seven and seven. Um, obviously, heifer development is a place that many producers in the U.S. can focus on to not only improve the quality of their herd, but that is also can be a big profit center for them. What advice can you offer to producers who are developing heifers? Um, what advice can you offer to help them reach their profit, profitability goals through reproductive technology ad adoption? Yeah, it, you know, it's, I think it's understanding how, you know, when you're talking about those synchronization programs and AI, you know, th there are two in the toolbox, right? So what I try to encourage producers to do is um, understand the benefits of the technology um, and how they can fit within their operations, right? Um, so how can they take advantage of it? You know, there's sometimes we go there and we budget those reproductive technologies and we see to what extent they're adding value to our operations. And they might not, you know, depending on the scenario you're in. So that's one of the things that I encourage uh, producers to do is really understand where the benefit lies and, and whether it's beneficial for them. I'll tell you that, uh, most situations when you go there and you evaluate, you know, in depth and you understand the benefits of those, um, 
producer stance, you go there and, and, and adopt it, right? Uh, because uh, the technology works and it works really well. And particularly for heifers, what's interesting is, you know, we usually think about, well, well I want to generate a, a AI pregnancy, right? I want, you know, that high accurate, uh, you know, low birth weight EPD bull in my replacement heifers and, and, and so forth. But, you know, those synchronization programs, one of the big things that we kind of underestimate is their ability to get cows pregnant or heifers pregnant early in the season, right? And, you know, this is important for cows. Cows that breed early, they breed back better in the next year, right? They have more time to recover. They're more likely to breed in the beginning of the breeding season. They wean heavier calves and their calves, when you follow them through their productive life, if they're born early, they are more productive. Um, both as replacement heifers and steers, um, there's studies have been done and they characterize all that, you know, that timing of conception is key in the cow herd in general, but in heifers is particularly important because we know that those heifers that conceive early in those first 21 days of the breeding season, they we're, we're pretty much setting them up for success, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They have greater longevity. They produce heavier calves, you know, that has been repeatedly shown, um, they stay longer in the herd and, you know, with input costs the way they are right now. Uh, and you think about the cost of developing replacement heifers, uh, longevity is really important, right? So if we can dilute those replacement heifer costs out by keeping those heifers longer in the herd, that's, that's, that's something really powerful. And, and, you know, synchronization programs allows us to do that. So we, we can increase the proportion of heifers that become early calving cows. Yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head there for all the cost and time and blood and sweat that goes into developing to get, you know, to get a heifer ready to go. And then for her to fall out of the herd after one calf because she didn't breed back or she's, you know, 30 days outside of your calving window. I mean, that that kind of stuff is just heartbreaking. So I, I understand exactly what you're talking about there um, and, and appreciate your advice as well there for the for our for our audience. Um, I want to pivot just a little bit because I know that you don't, that you do more than just research at the University of Georgia. You are also an assistant professor and teach classes. So I want to get your perspective on that. If, if you enjoy teaching, you know, what's your favorite class to teach? Oh, I love teaching. I love it. Uh, I only teach one class. So my, my teaching components are small. Um, so I just that teach, must be your favorite class then. But I teach the best class. That's that was what I was gonna say. Because I teach the, I, I teach the beef production and management class, and and I love okay. it. Uh, I yeah, I love it. We have uh, a lab component to the class, so we do a lot of cool things. We 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 flush cows, we ultrasound cows, we do DNA tests, we you know, go out to the farm and we compare bulls and, 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 you know, students develop heifers and they, you know, the pre-breeding evaluations and, and, and rank heifers. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It's just, just a fun class to teach. It's, it's challenging um, because of the demographics of animal science students nowadays. We have a lot of um, students that by not necessarily have an ag background. Um, so, and at the same time, we have students that, you know, grew up on a farm. So they're very uh, knowledgeable about beef production. So I have uh, the two extremes in, in the same classroom. So it's always nice to gauge 
you know, try to gauge the, the content and try to, you know, make sure everybody's learning something. Uh, it, it's a, it's a nice challenge and I enjoy it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So the audience can't see you right now well, as we're recording this, but you maybe will be used as a clip, but the entire time that he was describing teaching, he had a huge smile on his face. So maybe you need some more classes to teach because true you lit up when you were talking about teaching classes and the students and how much you loved it. That's great. Yeah, probably my day will have to be about, you know, 36 hours long, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hear that. Um, are there other challenges between research and teaching that you've experienced so far? I do neither of those things. So are there, do you have, you know, you would just talk about some of the challenges with teaching. How are those challenges different than what you experience in your research career? I mean, I, I feel like they're very different enterprises. So <laughs> sort of saying, right. Um, but I, I'll tell like, even though I smiled a lot when I was talking about teaching, I do love research um, um, and predominantly applied research because I do a lot of extension too. So I think it, it, you know, everything that I do from a research standpoint, it must have a take-home message that I can sit down with a group of producers and say, hey, this is what we're seeing, you know, and, and this is how we can make use of this data. And and I love that too. You know, it's, it is nice. Uh, the challenge aspect about research that a lot of people don't realize, you know, most people think that whenever we come up with a recommendation, it's, you know, we had an idea last year, we went there, did a three-month long trial and then we 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 look at the data it's like all right for now on we're doing this <laughs> yeah. the reality is you know <laughs> like if you think about you know we talk about synchronization protocols right um you know we go there and say well you know there's this new protocol or there's you know this is something that we've been working on as before i was born right <laughs> if, yeah. I, if i go there and do a trial that i see something you know it's it's not like i develop a synchronization program or a recommendation these are you know decades of decades of um, hundreds of people working towards something and working together and and then we come up with a recommendation together that you know it's repeatable you know i'm seeing here in georgia you know someone else is seeing it in montana or 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 california and and you know it's replicable across different different settings so i like that that aspect of research you know the 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 scientific process i i'm passionate about it um i like that a lot and yeah the challenge of research i like asking questions and trying to come up with answers well, I mean, speaking with you, I can see you. Um, thank you to technology that allows us to do this. But I mean, it's easy to see how your your passion for your work and research is is palpable. And it's great. We, I mean, we need more people in all walks of life to be passionate about their work and, you know, learning and education. So as someone who relies on extension education to for part of my livelihood i do appreciate the time and the passion that you put into developing these protocols um so I, you know thank you for that is there anything that we didn't touch on that you would like to share with the audience is there some big bucket of knowledge that i have just completely passed by that you that you're thinking i really want to talk about this with the audience yeah, you know, like you mentioned extension, right? And we talk about differences in between Brazil and, and the US. And one of the things that is most that was most noticeable for me uh, when I moved here, uh, I moved to Florida and I was living in a research station, right? So we used to have a lot of extension efforts coming out of that station in, in, in North Florida. 
and we we have some extension in Brazil. There's some people that do a good job, but we definitely do not have the same extension infrastructure and culture in Brazil. So we, we're talking about the differences between the different countries, right? So I feel like extension is quite an asset of, of, of uh, U.S. agriculture uh, in general. I think it's pretty nice that we, in this country, we have um, a nice extension system set up uh, that we can really, you know, use the knowledge from the university to serve the industry. Whether we're talking about beef production or any crops or anything ag-related, it's, it's, it's quite an asset. Yeah, uh, it's it's something amazing and yeah, that that's definitely different from Brazil. Uh, Brazil is trying to catch up, but uh, you know, usually most of that um that service that extension provides here, it's done through the private sector in Brazil, uh, from a consulting standpoint. So that's quite a difference, you know, it's quite a resource that we have in this country. Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm sure that we can all take for granted. Like if I mean you have that you have that exposure to to a country that doesn't have that. And then you're here and you, you see how we value it. And, um, I know that we turn to extension for everything from, um, you know, our cattle herd, but also like when we're looking at different forages, looking at soil samples. I mean, I think most operations in the United States, whether it be farming or ranching rely on the extension system to some extent for that continued knowledge and for those resources because nobody is an expert in anything and that's really where extension is just so valuable to us so i know that i uh, we really value it at our house so i hope that the extension in the united states continues to to grow and um and just be there as a resource for all of us it's time for our famous three so we are down to our i i used to call them rapid fire questions but I, they're not really that fast <laughs> But um, <laughs> um, they are kind of like our rounding out questions that we have for I that I ask for every staff at uh, every guest on the podcast. So the first one is, what is your favorite beef related book or resource? Book, book, I'm not sure, but I'll, I'll you know, I'll put out some resources. <laughs> what, I, what I usually tell people is, you know, I, I'm sure the audience here is pretty uh it's from different states, right? So, oh yeah, all over all over the United States. Yeah, so uh, I would encourage you to reach out to your local extension for for resources. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, kind of double tap there, because uh, you know it's it's usually uh, it's usually a, a good resource for information um, and, and a resource that I use. You know, I'm part of the UGA Beef team here. Uh, and we kind of put materials, a lot of materials together, but I also rely on a lot of materials from other states. So I try to, you know, see what people from different extension services um, across the, the country are doing. Um, and, yeah, I definitely use them as a resource as well. So, yeah, I would encourage people to take advantage of that. Well, that's good. That's a good plug. I like that. Okay, so what is a book not related to beef or cattle that you really love? I There's a book that, you know, one of... Um, uh, the members of my uh, PhD committee recommended me, uh, and I recommend that book to every graduate student that joins my program. And that book's called Letters to a Young Scientist. Oh, okay. I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but it's an excellent book about um, about just science in general, you know, and a career in science. Um, the author is a uh, uh, he studies insect behavior, so it's something. Oh. 
cool. uh, very different, but uh, I think the scientific process and, and how he's, he talks about, you know, building a career towards answering, you know, relevant questions. And, and in his case, they're very, it's different than what we do. It's very applied, right? For us, it's very easy to, to wrap our heads around on, on what we're doing things. But uh, yeah, it's just an awesome book, very enjoyable to read. It's called um, Letters to a Young Scientist. And and yeah, I try to recommend to everybody that might or might not be involved in science, but if they are, they definitely should read that book. Okay. Letters to a Young Scientist. I did Google it while you were talking and it is written by Edward O. Wilson. So yes, that's the that word. is uh, the book. That is our book recommendation, Letters to a Young Scientist by Edward Wilson. Okay. And so the last kind of round out question here is what trait do you find admirable in others that has helped them reach success? Uh, <laughs> I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, it's... It's not what makes you be successful, but I guess it's a requirement, right? You got to work hard. <laughs> it's pretty much a requirement. It's not going to make you stand out. But if you don't, you know, uh, I think it's really hard to, to everybody that I know that it's outstanding. Um, uh, the people that I look, you know, as, as examples and, and they're successful in my field, they all work pretty hard. Um, but not only that, people that really care uh, and they're passionate about you know the industry that we're in um uh, the scientific process for people there in academia you know um that's also a requirement uh, it's really clear uh, when you talk to fellow scientists the ones that are really passionate about it that really understand it um yeah so i think it's hard work in in in, in being passionate about it i think that's when i look at the guys that are role models for me they all have that for sure that sounds like a good combination, passion and hard work. That's great. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you, Dr. Fontes, for joining us on the Beef Podcast Show. If people want to find you or learn more about Beef Extension or your work, um, do you have a social profile or a website or something where they could learn more or to reach out to you? Sure. Uh, you know, I'll share um, our, our group, right? I don't have a personal one, but we have one for our extension group. So on Facebook, we're at, at UJ, uh, UJ Beef Team. Okay. And on Instagram as well, UJ Beef Team. We're also there on Instagram now. We're trying to uh, dive into that world too. <laughs> but we do have a website. It's ujbeef.com that we also share um, a lot of the programs that we have going on here. Uh, some of it is specific to Georgia, but some of it is, is relevant to folks um, around the country. So it's, uh, it's useful information. So you can find us there. Well, thank you. We will make sure we put UGA Beef Team on Facebook and Instagram and also the UGABeef.com. Those website and those profiles, those are in the show notes. For those of you who are listening and didn't get that written down quickly enough. Um, but thank you, Dr. Fontes, for joining us today. We really appreciate your knowledge and sharing your expertise um, and just giving us a little bit of time for your day. So um, with that, we will let you get back to your day. But thank you all. And for the audience listening, we will talk to you next week on the Beef Podcast Show. Thank you, Brandy.